Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone. On today's pod, we will discuss the contentious topic of short selling. Short selling is an investment or trading strategy that speculates on the decline in a stock or other security's price. It's a risky strategy and can be viewed as exploitive. To challenge that idea, today we are talking to Carson Block, the founder of Muddy Water Research, who takes an activist approach to short selling and has exposed fraudulent accounting practices in publicly traded companies. Juan and Carson discuss the probabilistic thinking and psychological frameworks needed when being a contrarian thinker, as well as the inter-industry collaborations used when exposed unethical financial practices. We've got a couple of definitions before we kick off. Firstly, capital structure arbitrage refers to a strategy used by companies where they take advantage of the existing market mispricing across all securities to make profits. In this strategy, there's buying undervalued securities and the selling of the same company's overvalued securities. The main objective is to make use of the pricing and efficiency to make a profit when a company uses its capital structure. Carson will also reference the AMF in France. I will not uh, attempt the French pronunciation, but it stands for the Financial Markets Authority and is the stock market regulator in France. Enjoy. Carson Block, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? Yeah, you know, doing well. Summertime, so yeah. uh, like relaxing a little bit, but doing well. Where, where do we find you today? I'm in Austin, Texas. Um, I've lived here for a little less than a year, and I moved the firm uh, from San Francisco to Austin. Uh, was that because of COVID? Well, COVID had an impact. We were supposed to relocate to New York City as of summer 2020, and that was a decision that we had made in 2018. But when I guess in November of 2020, we really had to make that we had to figure out whether we were going to ultimately go to New York or not. And I just couldn't, especially with young kids in good faith or in good conscience, move to New York City when it was unknown or unknowable how long COVID would be with us and whether there would be lockdowns. And um, so by the same token, though, we really needed to get out of California. Um, I was personally living in a fire zone, so we wanted to stop spending all of our time um, at a house that's in the wildfire zone. But the other thing was it's just California's, it's just gone off the deep end uh, culturally. And during COVID, it really, I did get an opportunity to cogitate a decent bit on the importance of local and state governance and just became convinced that the government, the purpose of the government, like California has gone so far off the cliff that 
really the government is just hostile to people, to its citizenry. So yeah, wanted to get out of there and um, hadn't really ever spent time in Austin. So we kind of threw a dart, but made it here and uh, we've really enjoyed it. I mean, the, the really like the culture here in Austin, it's, it's not hard right by any means. It's probably left of center politically and people are very friendly and it's been a great place for our kids. Their kids are thriving and those of us who made the move here, I think, are generally very happy with it. I jump right ahead uh, asking you about your location without giving you the opportunity to introduce yourself. And for those who don't know who Carson Block is and Muddy Waters, could you give a brief intro about yourself? Sure. Yeah, sorry. That uh, got everything about my location and nothing about uh, me or my firm. But we're classified. So Muddy Waters, um, the first incarnation of this business, I started in 2010 and it's basically an activist short selling model. So we, we look for companies that are, if not frauds from a technical or legal perspective, are at least intellectually fraudulent. And we short those, we short the stocks or sometimes the bonds and go public with our analyses or our reports that explain what's really going on at these companies. So I think it's, I think of it as a form of investigative journalism or investigative financial journalism, but married to a non-traditional revenue model. And in 2016, we began managing outside capital. So the, the non-traditional revenue model portion now is actually a fully uh, registered, uh, well, fully SEC registered private fund uh, manager. So that's, that's our business. Um, I know that what you guys do is what you just described as activist short selling. So for those that are not uh, very technical in the finance nature, what's the difference between normal short selling and an activist short selling? Sure. So if... In theory, if the universe of good short ideas were, say, 100 ideas, then the universe of good activist short ideas might be 10 to 15. And what activist short selling is, so the vast majority of short selling is done by long biased managers, and it's used to hedge out market risk or hedge out beta. So they might go long an automaker that they like, and they're trying to hedge out beta by being short some automakers they don't like. But then you also have, um, you have long short managers, or you used to have more short bias managers that will go directionally short a company. I think this company is, uh, the profits are going to fall off a cliff, blah, blah, blah. Therefore, I'm short that company. Now, the vast majority of short selling is based on fundamental theses or what we describe as a melting ice cube. So the short seller thinks that the business is going to deteriorate faster than the market thinks. And that's why they put on a position. That's traditional short selling and what would constitute 85 to 90% of actionable or reasonable short theses. Now that other 10 to 15%, you can call it fraud shorting, although a lot of the companies that I would categorize that I put in this category are not from a legal perspective. It'd be very hard to prove their frauds. It's basically it's intellectually fraudulent financials or presentations of TAMs or the states of business. But maybe 
from a legal perspective, they have their boxes ticked and nobody's going to ever try to bring a case against them. And so that would be stock promotions as well, stock manipulations, but that's also a form of fraud. But basically those companies that are significantly manipulating the information that they give to the market. And those are really tough to short if nobody's going to tell the world about it. And it used to be that pre-financial crisis, there it used to be that there was a somewhat robust investigative journalism profession in finance. And so the traditional short sellers, you know, before the rise of activist shorts such as ourselves, they would when they would find these companies, and again, the well, I shouldn't say again, but I'd say significant portion of active short sellers, not activists, a significant portion of short sellers previously would avoid this class of stock just because they can keep, you know, the the, the promoters or the fraudsters, they can keep the uh, the illusion going for a long time if nobody tells the world about it. But for the firms that used to do fraud shorting, the idea was you take your short position and then you go find a journalist who's looking for a really interesting story to dig into and you give them the story, they do their work and hopefully they end up publishing an article exposing the company. But that model has become non-viable, really, because, um, I mean, you've had just newsrooms have been cut, experienced reporters have been laid off, the human attention span has shrunk. So there isn't the, content, there isn't the appetite for that kind of long-form, deep-dive investigative journalism anymore, especially in finance. So as the traditional media has receded from the space, that left an opening for people such as ourselves who said, we're actually, we can bring more sophisticated analyses to bear than traditional media did because, you know, I've got a former auditor who works with me, got, I mean, we, we take a team approach here and we, we engage lawyers and investigators. So we throw a lot of resources at this. So we can be more, we can do much better research and reporting than traditional media has done. Now, we do blend the news with our commentary and our opinion, because a lot of times you need to interpret these facts. So a typical report structure will be fact, 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 opinion, fact, 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 opinion or conclusion. So that's a little bit different from traditional media. But then, yeah, the, the way that we pay for this business is by basically putting on risk and hopefully making money. And when we do what we do, if we do it well, we get sued, we get attention from hostile regulators who are set upon us by companies who, you know, lobby the government and are at the same cocktail parties with government officials and, you know, and regulatory officials. But that's basically the nature of this beast of activist short selling. So we've stepped into a breach that at this point is almost entirely unpopulated by traditional media. Um, and we, we out wrongdoing or just, I mean, in unethical, I'd say immoral practices, if not outright illegal practices, and we pay for it by trading these, the companies that we're reporting on. I want to ask you about, um, how much do you believe your behavior as a college was impacted from just being 
someone doing the research and the investigation and make it that public for someone else to trade, to actually trading yourself and taking the risk. But before I ask you that, something that caught my attention, and I just remember that I, I didn't realize that point that you were making about how maybe there were not enough reporters nowadays willing to expose cases like this. And I remember that Bethany McLean was the one who, as a reporter, she exposed Enron, despite the fact that there had been some short sellers, some well, some well known. And actually, I think that it was a, a short seller who told her to look into Enron because things were not adding up. Yeah, it was, uh, so Jim Chanos of Kinecos Associates, he was Bethany's um, original source for Enron. So they had discovered a number of anomalies at Enron. And that's one of the things with complex, um, with complex situations like that, where it's really hard from the outside as an investor, because we also have to make sure that we don't come in contact with material non-public information. So it's very difficult for us, if we're going to be trading the stocks, to really understand the, at times the scale of problems within a, a public company. So we can detect a lot of times if there is fraud or if there is real misrepresentation, but the scale of it is hard to, it, it can be really hard to understand from the outside. A great example of that was um, NMC Health, which we reported on in December, 2019. We knew it was a fraud. We knew there was some debt that the company was not actually reporting. So basically debt that it was illegally keeping off balance sheet, but it had disclosed as of its most recent financial report, the June 2019 report, it had disclosed about two and a half billion dollars of debt. Um, so we knew that there was more, like I thought it was maybe, I thought it was up to 500 million more in debt that they were illegally keeping off the balance sheet. Turns out that the real number of undisclosed debt was $4 billion and that the actual debt of this company was six and a half billion, not two and a half. So that's an example. And that, that's similar to what happened with Kinecos, Enron, Bethany McLean. Like they saw indicia that there were things that were seriously off. And, you know, uh, once Bethany started reporting on it and then also uh, some journalists from the Wall Street Journal began a series of reports as well, where I think short sellers were their primary source, then the company unwound relatively quickly. And it had been a massive company by standards of the time in terms of market cap. One critique one hears regarding activist short sellers is that you take the position, you're already invested, then you release the report. My question is, how is that different from 20 years ago, Jim Chaynor's telling Bethany McLean to make it public that Enron had very aggressive accounting? Well, so, I mean, for one thing, Jim Chanos could never tell Bethany McLean to make it public, right? I mean, he's competing for her attention with lots of other people who have stories, both positive and negative, that they're pitching reporters all the time. And the other problem that you get in that traditional model of short seller media relationship is that the reporter has limited time. And now the amount of time that reporters are given to turn stories today is, I think, far less than what they used to get. Back then, they, they were given more license 
to dig deeply and they didn't have to constantly pump out stories so that you could get these clickbait headlines trying to draw people's eyeballs in for like 13 seconds. So the nature of journalism um, has, has made this much more difficult for, um, you know, for journalists to work with sources such as ourselves or such as short sellers. But yeah, the thing is you also, um, you know, even, even in times, even if you're in a situation or dealing with a journalist who's got one of the rare journalists who has license from his or her employer to do long form journalism and to investigate, they don't have the sophistication to understand complex accounting. Number one. Number two, they don't have the resources to do field work most of the time. So if we're talking about, and I muddy waters started um, by exposing Chinese frauds that were listed in the US. So if we went to a US-based media outlet instead and said, hey, you know, we found that this company is a fraud, well, you need to send people to their factories in remote parts of China and talk to security guards there and set up video cameras to count trucks, things like that. Those are resources that journalists will not, you know, almost will never have. So that's the kind of work that activist short sellers, and that's the kind of work that traditional short sellers who do fraud shorting work that they would do. But again, like the, you know, the, the journalist is not going to be able to do that kind of work. And so ultimately what the journalist is going to be able to publish or be willing to publish is going to be a very watered down version of the problems that exist at an egregious company. And again, that's for lack of complete understanding of lacking the type of understanding and sophistication to analyze these situations that we have or that we can bring to bear and two, not having the resources to do the sort of work that we that we have and now three like i said they don't have the time and ps long-form investigative journalism especially in finance is a loss leader so media traditional media outlets only countenance it to the extent that it helps them with halos and they hope they win some awards out of it, but they don't make money directly on those um, on that type of reporting anymore. So, you know, even if you felt like, well, gee, you know, the, this is a more pure form of exposing the dirty laundry of our public markets. All right, great. It's just, you know, the, the economics aren't there. And in the world that we live in, it's kind of activist short sellers or nothing. I mean, that's effectively what it is. You know, I mean, I hear from critics all the time. I've been doing this 12 years and, oh, you know, well, you shouldn't be shorting it. Well, I don't know, man. There's no other business model that pays for this reporting. That's the reality. This is the only one I have found in 12 years spent cogitating on this. I mean, believe me, like I, one of the, and when I say that I have thought about whether there are other ways to pay for this type of reporting, it's driven by the fact that, even though, you know, in theory, when we go to court, when we get sued by one of these companies, we should be similarly situated, especially in the U.S. where you have the First Amendment, we should be similarly situated to any traditional media defendant. But that's theory. And practice is judges are generally skeptical. You know, well, you're short sellers. And so it's always a higher bar for us to get rid of a case than it would be for the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg. 
they can do it more easily than we can. So I have thought over the years, like, gee, well, is there another way to have a viable business doing this that, you know, wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't have this, I guess, this bias in the public and in the judiciary against it so that we could just at least deal with the litigation in a more expedient manner? And the answer is no. I, I can come up with nothing that will pay for it. I mean, maybe I could like get a raise a bunch of money for investors for like a new media company that, you know, I don't really believe is going to be viable, make money, you know, at least if we do this long form journalism. But, you know, I, I don't feel like blowing up a, you know, a bunch of investors either. Like I, I want to run a business that actually has an economic rationale to it. So that's why I'm here with you right now as, you know, a quote, activist short seller. That's really interesting. This is a podcast where we have explored human behavior and how some biases have an impact on the way that people make decisions, good or bad, while dealing with life's uncertainty. And it can be very taxing psychologically to take the contrarian view, especially in an ecosystem like the market. Um, actually, we've heard some of your colleagues say that short selling is all about the psychology of the actors involved. So I wanted to ask you, what sort of personality and behavioral tra traits do you believe an activist short seller need to have in order to be successful? Okay, well, I think, and so I'll apply this to traditional or non-activist short sellers as well as activists. I mean, my observation of us as a group uh, is that many of us are socially awkward. So when, you know, every summer prior to COVID, one of the traditional short selling funds in the US had a big event that was just fantastic event and like short sellers would come even from Europe and just being in that crowd, you're like, yeah, most of these people would have probably been somewhat marginalized in high school at the very least. And so I think that being, you know, having kind of been rejected by the mainstream or I should say maybe never accepted by the mainstream throughout most of our lives has made it, you know, has, has by necessity really given us the ability to think very critically about the mainstream and therefore consensus. So in my case, I think I come off generally as less socially awkward than, than most short sellers, but for me, I grew up in a, in a wealthy community just outside of New York City, Pretty much, you know, like a lot of people's fathers worked on Wall Street, were bankers, country club memberships, etc. But for me, I got my parents got divorced when I was six, which was a, a demerit, basically, in a town where everybody was trying to pretend that they had these very intact, happy families. And one of my parents also descended into alcoholism, which became known. And, you know, that was something, you know, that I got. I got ripped on quite a bit for uh, growing up. So I was never quite in the mainstream, even in high school when I'd kind of reverse engineered like how to be popular, basically have access to alcohol, access to girls, a good car, and you know, like throw lots of parties at my father's place because he didn't really have a problem with that. You know, even then, I wasn't quite really on the inside. So being on the outside, looking in at the, the pretty people who, again, like I said, there were very strong ties to Wall Street, I began to see see through the facade, like these intact families, you know, like parents were alcoholics, mothers were on like, 
you know, antidepressants, you know, like maximum dosages. Um, families were, you know, levered to the hilt, needing their kids to get scholarships, even though they had a vacation home and, you know, country club membership. So seeing through that facade, it was a survival skill, right? Because if you're being shunned by the mainstream effectively, you know, if you don't want to feel like you're a loser, you need to feel like the mainstream, they're losers. So, you, you know, you develop that critical eye and it became, you know, and so what, what really developed within me and, you know, I, I think things I'm saying here apply broadly to short sellers as a group, you know, in some form or another. But, you know, what, what happened to me is I, I began to loathe hypocrisy because that's what I saw around me, right? Like the people who were constantly putting themselves on this pedestal vis-a-vis -vis me, you know, because my parents were divorced and the alcoholic and parent and da-da-da. It's like, you guys, your parents were just better at covering this stuff up and you were better at covering this up. And at least, look, man, I've been transparent here. You have not. And so that really gave me an intense dislike for hypocrites and hypocrisy that exists to today. And just, just to give you an example, I, I, I recently was uh, having a discussion with another father in, um, you know, in, in Austin, our kids were on the same baseball team and he's, he's an evangelical Christian. And anyway, uh, he actually, he's, he's white, but he's married to a black woman. So he does have a lot of sensitivity to, you know, racial issues, you know, unlike I think a lot of your typical white evangelicals, but we were talking about Bill Cosby versus Dr. Dre. And, you know, he was saying that, look, Bill Cosby was largely net net. He was a positive influence. The, you know, what the role model, the, the, the way he modeled behavior for you know, black Americans, especially young men, you know, being, you know, being an active father, not being into violence and swearing and degrading women and this and that you know, this was net positive. And I'm like, bro, he was a serial rapist. And he's like, well, you know, the thing is there are like 16 women whose lives he destroyed or something like that, but far more, you know, people whom he influenced positively. He said, on the other hand, look at Dr. Dre, like Dr. Dre is, you know, like he beat his girlfriends early on and, you know, he was around a murder and you know, even rapped about it. It was the last NWA song that they ever dropped. And, you know, and I, I was just like, I don't know. Like for me, the opposite is true. Dre never hid what he was, right? It was in the lyrics. As like Bill Cosby, that's the most insidious type of behavior on the planet because he was a monster and he hid it. So that's where I come from. And I think I'm shaped by that experience growing up where again, like I, I out of necessity had to see through the facades and that's effectively what we do as activist short sellers, you know, especially when, you know, with with muddy waters, we we generally play in a I'd say in a larger market cap pond than we fish in a larger market cap pond than most activist short sellers do. So we will you know we will criticize companies, we will expose companies and managements that are banked by prestigious investment banks and have prestigious named law firms representing them, and that is what gets me out of bed in the morning. It's to say you know what. I know the deal here. Okay. There are thousands of investors out there who do not, who think that you at the investment bank actually do something called due diligence. I know, and you know that you don't do it. You just want to pump out financial products. 
and you pumped out a really bad one here and your equity research analysts are beholden effectively to the managements of the companies they cover and the general public doesn't want to see that. So I'm going to go at, I'm going to go at you, man. Like I'm going to expose what's going on. Like that's basically the psychology when you get to the activist short seller. I think that that's really the psychology that those of us who are, who've been in this a long time um, and have had staying power. Like, I think that's what drives us at the end of the day is just, it's that intense dislike of hypocrisy and the facade that, you know, that these guys are doing the right thing and that they're good citizens and good corporate citizens. And we just want to expose that. Something that you, I don't think that you mentioned during your summary bio at the beginning of our conversation is that, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you did a major in business in your undergrad, but then you specialized, uh, you did law. Right. So I actually grew up in finance. So my father also worked on Wall Street, but he was in more the micro cap segment of Wall Street, not the Goldman Sachs segment of Wall Street. So I grew up helping him type his reports and edit them and going into uh, going into work literally on Wall Street um, summers starting when I was like, I think the first summer I did that was after eighth grade. So I was, I think then uh, I was probably like 14, 13 or 14 when I started doing that. And so I always wanted to be an investor. Um, I went to university, got a business degree, concentration in finance. Um, when I graduated in 1998, I had had this idea of setting up an equity research firm in China. And I mean, this was 1998. There was focusing on the Chinese A shares. There was no foreign equity research on A shares. So I figured like, hey, better early than late. Um, so I went to China right after graduation, took about six or seven months to realize like, I was probably a decade too early or more because there were just no investable companies listed in the mainland exchanges at that time. It was deliberate policy to not allow good companies to list. So I went back to the US. I did iBanking for about nine months with CIBC World Markets. So CIBC for a moment in time was trying to be a bulge bracket. Really didn't like the politics of the big bank. And then I, my father had moved out to LA. So we teamed up and did equity research together on microcap companies, long-oriented equity research. And so this was 99 through 02. And turns out that we had gotten lied to by a lot of managements and used by them because my father, and then I was developing a, a client base also, our clients were fund managers. And so we would take the managements on non-deal roadshows and our clients, our institutional clients would buy the stocks up. But it turns out that managements were dumping in many cases. And back then, their stock sales weren't public uh, for 45 days after the sale. So, I mean, it was just, we were totally being used, confronted a couple of these managements. They lied to us. One of the companies ended up being adjudicated a fraud. I mean, that, that was this crazy story where I set up a meeting with one of my institutional clients, a portfolio manager in LA, and my father and the CFO of this company went to the meeting. CFO's name was Jeff Conway. He was CFO of a company called Rentway that no longer exists. It was acquired by Rent-A-Center. And so Conway looked my client in the eye, pointed at my father, Bill, and said, in the 17 quarters Bill has been following us, we've never missed one of his earnings estimates. That's how good a handle we have on the numbers. I mean, he said that with such conviction. 
So the next week, when he was supposed to meet my father in New York, he didn't show up and the stock didn't open. And then there was an announcement. Uh-oh, accounting fraud. Conway pled guilty, ultimately, went to prison, found Jesus, got out a little early for his Jesus points. And yeah, and it was just this embittering experience that I had where I'm like, well, you know, we're getting lied to in microcap land. Let's look up the chain. Oh, that's Enron, WorldCom, Tyco, HealthSouth. Who in the markets is not lying and cheating was my question. So as of 2002, I mean, I was greatly disillusioned about investing because it's what I had wanted to do for years. Like ever since I'd accepted that I would not be a professional baseball player, I wanted to be a professional investor. But I just felt like this was a really disadvantaged position to be in. So I decided, okay, I'm going to go to law school, which is a graduate degree in the US. It's a three-year degree. And I will, by virtue of going to law school, hopefully get tools that will help me be a better investor and protect myself against financial predators. So that was my orientation when I went into law school. Liked law school far better than I had anticipated. I ended up practicing for a little bit. I had an offer from Kirkland and Ellis for the US. I had an offer for Jones Day in Shanghai. And look, if I'd wanted to be a lawyer, I, you know, the right thing to do would have been taking the US offer. But since for me, it was about being an investor or an entrepreneur, I took the offer in Shanghai. And I was with Jones Day for about nine months, left, started the first self-storage business in mainland China, got just smoked almost every single day of having that business. But through that, in China, I learned to see the matrix. And I also, during that time, I co-authored Doing Business in China for Dummies. So I absorbed experiences from a lot of other foreign entrepreneurs in China. And it just taught me so much about illusion versus reality and how almost anything can be faked. And so in late, very end of 2009, my father got interested in these Chinese companies, the micro caps that had gone public in the US via reverse merger. He was super excited about them because they all had these great growth stories. And you know me, I was cynical. I, I mean, I didn't think that the numbers were fake. I just, I thought that, you know, the idea, I, I basically thought, look, the chairman from these companies are going to be stealing money out of the companies, but that will be reflected in numbers. Question is, is it an acceptable amount of money they're stealing? And if it's thus far been acceptable, will it remain acceptable? Or are they basically just, you know, trying to get a massive payday and screw investors? So that was kind of how I went into this. So I, I thought, based on that orientation, I thought my father was barking up the wrong tree, but he wanted me to help him. And so I did. And I looked at this first company called Orient Paper and Again, like it was audited, right? So why wouldn't the numbers be real? Well, this is, I would soon thereafter learn that auditors, like literally, I'm not being facetious, auditors remit is not to look for fraud. Their remit is to ensure or to give assurance that the correct accounting standards have been applied and that they've been applied correctly. So if you have a management that's handing auditors a bunch of fake contracts and fake invoices, and fake bank statements, like that's all you need to commit fraud, basically. The auditors aren't looking to try to, they're not trying to figure out whether the documents are fake. They take them at face value. So that is how Orient Paper had just reported $103 million in revenue in 2009, but the real revenue was about two and a half to $3 million. I mean, it was over, it was like 96, 97% 
fake. And that's what we found in China. So we exposed Orient Paper, the report went viral, didn't expect that, realized that this was a systemic issue with Chinese companies listing in the US that they were pretty much all committing fraud. And it became a race against other activist short sellers who like the profession suddenly became a profession. There had been a couple of guys doing it, uh, activist short selling, but it was it was really it was really just kind of funky. It was micro cap. Now all of a sudden it was getting real attention, and it was getting we, because of China. You know, we were like institutional investors were long things that were total frauds, and so we we sprinted to expose those over the next two years, and finally um, came up for air. And, um, you know, thought about, like, what's the cause? Like, how do you get these empty boxes, the ad, these abject frauds from China listed in the U.S., audited, you know, IPOs with, you know, Goldman, et cetera. And I, you know, and it just, I connected the dots. It's like, you know, the, the conflicts of interest, the laziness, um, just the ineptitude, the plausible deniability, like that's how it happened with the China frauds. And I said, and that's the same thing that really enabled all this stuff in the first iteration of my career as well. And so that's the state of the financial markets. A lot of people who are overcompensated for basically looking good, but not actually doing any real value add, being lazy. And, you know, like the, unfortunately the investing public, you know, sometimes investors on the other side of these trades, actually a lot of times when we say some of the company's highly problematic, they'll shoot back like, oh, well, you know, like Goldman Sachs would never risk its reputation or, you know, Deloitte would, they do it all the time. They get incinerated publicly all the time. And because you guys don't remember, they've, they've realized it doesn't matter. They can do it again and again and again. And so they do it again and again and again. And so when I connected those thoughts, I was like, Anywhere there's liquidity and stock borrow, there are going to be people in the markets doing things they shouldn't be doing. You know, the, the dumb guys, you know, go and they rob convenience stores. The smart guys, they'll go to the financial markets. So that we went global starting in 2012, looking for dysfunction really in any market that makes sense for us and from a trading perspective. And that's how I got here. Um, before I move into the next question, something that I wanted to ask you is, if that combination of having been an entrepreneur, having spent some time in finance, but also having the legal angle, does that, you think that that helps you see the world from a different perspective? Well, so, I mean, it, I think it helps me, I, it makes me much more sophisticated and it definitely is what I need to run this business and the way I do run this because I know enough accounting to, you know, to be able to work closely with my partner, who's a former auditor, and understand the issues and, and help figure out where to prod. I know enough about real business. And believe me, if all you've done your whole, like, quote, business career is sit in front of a spreadsheet or spreadsheets, you actually really are missing out on how businesses work. And I learned so much through my effectively failed real world business attempt, I learned so much about what makes businesses, like the people that go into them and, and how the policies and leadership, et cetera, shape these things and the cultures. So yeah, these, you know, these three toolboxes that I have have been integral. Now I'd say also the legal toolbox is very important because 
when I look at when short activists screw up, right? Like when short activists put out reports that I think are, you know, in some way wrong. I mean, I, I think usually they're directionally correct. I haven't seen too many where I felt like, look, man, you totally got it wrong. Like this is not a messed up company, but there are portions of those reports that I think can be really off base. And what I think gets the short activists in those instances, it's not malicious. It's unknown unknowns. And, you know, because of my three toolboxes, but especially the legal toolbox, particularly because I did it in China. So I had to learn the US legal system and then the, the legal system in China. And I, it, that was, that's a great, you know, shifting of perspectives. It really helps me figure out what the, you know, like make our unknown unknowns, known unknowns, and then figure out whether, you know, like the, well, and then go and try to get the answers and figure out whether it's really a problem or not. So I think I sit on top of a large team. In some ways, I'm a general contractor, right? Like I'm basically synthesizing the work and I'm directing and synthesizing the work of subject matter experts beneath me or people who are focusing on portions of a research project that play to their strengths. And then it comes to me and I, and I bring it together. And my, and for me, it's, I think of my job is at least as much risk management or playing defense as it is playing offense. Like that's what I think you need the mentality you need to have as an activist short seller, because, you know, your mistakes are so much more amplified than the mistakes of somebody who says something on the long side about a company so much more. So, um, so yeah, I think that those toolboxes and look, if I could add toolboxes, I would be, I would be more quantitatively adept. Um, I wish I understood yeah, like, you know, high math and, and, you know, option math much better than I do, but the legal, the practical business, real world business, and obviously the finance, um, I think are really the, the building blocks for, yeah, for somebody to sit in my chair and, and do hopefully a good job. Being able to try demands a lot of self-confidence to endure periods where the market fails to recognize or understand what you see that others have missed. And like you said at the beginning, it exposes you to the anger of many of the different uh, actors involved in any specific case. So how do you protect you psychologically during these periods of time, especially if the market is going against you? Well, almost the entire time I've done this, the market has gone against us. I mean, at least overall, right? You know, starting this in 2010. But yeah, I mean, in the early days, you know, I, I lived and died a little bit each day based on how a given stock was moving, right? Like we were out there and, and these things get really personal uh, at times, or they used to get really personal. And um, I always had thick skin. You need that to do this business. My skin has gotten thicker, um, but, you know, I'd say by the same token, you know, it, the period during COVID was, it, it's still, it's changed me and my approach to business somewhat. Um, and in, in particular, yeah, in many ways, but uh, in several ways, but in this way as well, whereas, you know, like the thing, COVID was kind of liberating in some ways, because I used to generally do my TV appearances in a suit often a tie, but that's not who I am. Like I'm right now sitting in a t-shirt and jeans talking to you. That's what I wear every day. If it's not a t-shirt and shorts, basically it's occasionally a polo shirt. 
So when COVID hit, and to me, it was like the height of silliness that you've got financial TV, you've got all these people appearing on financial TV, you know, and like suits and ties while, you know, their wives are in the other room with like leashes and muzzles around their kids, like, you know, praying that they won't burst in on daddy's CNBC appearance. And I just took this approach of like, let's not even go through this pretense, man. We're all sitting at home in some version of a closet or what have you. And, and so I basically, I'd say that was, you know, I, I kind of dropped the last vestiges of a TV version of me. And I also did the same thing on social media. You know, I used to, I mean, people used to say, you know, advise me, look, don't get into debates with like these individual, you know, like unhinged um, investors on Twitter, don't punch down. But, you know, I just, I don't know, like I, at times, especially look, especially during COVID times when the markets ripped and just this flood of people touchdown dancing every day that one of the things we'd been short went up and, you know, calling me a fraud and calling for me to go to prison. Um, and me knowing the whole time that the company, the subject company is like basically fake in many respects, if not like a, you know, an outright fraud. And that I've seen this movie before because I've been around markets most of my 46 years on this planet. Um, and that these people were confusing, you know, luck for skill. And I don't know, I just, it, like I said, it was liberating. So I do sometimes engage in those slug fests out there on social media. And I look, I, I generally, you know, I, I might be highly sarcastic, but you know, I don't, like, I don't, I don't think I tear into anybody and get like really personal and, you know, call them names, but yeah, that's, um, I don't know. I mean, I look at the end of the day, you have to have thick skin. You have to be able to find ways to, you know, let all the negativity roll off you. I mean, this is a much harder business than people think it is from the outside. I had a, a partner, it was an old college friend of mine who um, had been at PIMCO and he was a rock star at PIMCO. He, um, he was doing, um, he was running a capital structure arbitrage book there in, inside a hedge fund, one of PIMCO's actual hedge funds. And yeah, we'd known each other since college. He thought he had a good sense of what my business was like. And then he joined and it was like day one. It was like, hey man, uh, just to let you know, um, we just got hit with a, uh, a request from the SEC on behalf of the AMF in France. So we're under AMF investigation. Oh, and we just got hit with this lawsuit here by the company, this company that we shorted uh, you know, a few weeks ago. <laughs> and he's just, and so like this guy was genuinely by the end of his tenure here, I mean, despite all of the conversations he'd had with me and all of my explanations to him about what makes this business hard and my venting to him and, and telling like, and I really, really was, you know, I really was encouraging him to think long and hard before deciding to leave PIMCO to join here. Even then he was still shocked by how difficult and just emotionally taxing this business is. So I don't think like any of us who do this business or do this business for a while are going to be thought of as your most well-adjusted people out there, but you know, like you kind of need that. That's what you need, right? You need people like us and, you know, who just feel like there's something that drives us. There's some maladjustment there. And, you know, that sometimes can call upon a deep reservoir of anger to fight through all of the stuff that the companies uh, throw at us and also the, you know, the central bankers who've been pushing up the markets for, you know, more than a decade. 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I, yeah, you, you do need a lot of thick skin to go against a very large crowd. Probably thinking something that we have largely explored in this podcast. And for some people, it comes naturally, but for most, it is a challenge. And I was wondering if, as part of your process, do you think in terms of probabilities before coming out publicly with the research on a new situation, where you're trying to anticipate the likelihood of different outcomes taking place? We had Dominique Miel on this podcast, and she said uh, she specialized at Canyon buying distress debt, and she was a big fan of decision tree analysis. I was kind of wondering if, if that's something that you guys consider. Well, yes and no. I mean, we don't, we don't sit there and try to model out outcomes and assign probabilities to them. I mean, the, you know, when you think about short activism, the way that it's successful, okay, we bring a bunch of problems to the market's attention that the market was generally unaware of. I mean, even though a lot of times to us, these things are hiding in plain sight, but whatever, we, we bring these problems to the market's attention. Now, if, if there's a strong reaction on day one, this is critical to the long-term success of a short activist campaign because at least, it, so when I started doing this in 2010, coming out of the financial crisis, on the long side, investors were still remunerated um, for being good assessors of risk. But I feel like the turning point or the tipping point was in 2013 when the mentality of trying to assess risk and care about risk on the long side just became basically anachronistic. And that those, you know, those investors de facto became labeled value investors and they underperformed while everybody who basically said, I don't care about risks, I only care about stories, you know, while they were the ones who benefited um, from the bull market. So, you know, what we need, and especially against that backdrop where People where long side investors, successful long side investors have been deconditioned from caring about risk. It's critical that day one have a real reaction to the stock price, because if you don't have that, then the investors aren't going to ask the questions of the managements. And then the managements can basically everybody can pretend that this didn't happen, because one thing you have to understand about the long holders vis-a-vis short activists is the long holders want us to be wrong. They want us to fail initially. But if there's enough of an initial reaction or they've lost money, then they're forced to care. And if they're forced to care and they start asking questions of the company, that's when usually it will, if the, if the campaign will be successful, all this pressure is put on the company and things start to break on the inside. Decisions are made not to be so aggressive, or if it's a fraud, they realize they have to like, you know, just tank the numbers because they can't continue with the fraud. Um, Directors resign, CFO might resign, it could be an investigation, the auditor pays somewhat closer attention. So these are the things that will get you a win over the long term as a short activist, but it's really kind of dependent on most cases on day one, like does the market seem to care or are people being forced to care? So the the hardest thing for us, the hard thing is not finding companies that we think are problematic. The hard part is finding companies that where we think the, you know, the problems are so significant that they can overcome investor apathy. And because, I mean, really that's what I was saying from 
financial crisis onward, at least to Q4 of last year, the markets were just an apathy building and reinforcing mechanism. Um, so we have to think like, this probably will matter or this probably won't matter. And that's hard. I mean, it's, we get that wrong all the time, you know, where there's something that we took a pass on because we didn't think investors would care. And then you'd see another short activist do it. And you're like, oh, wow, actually investors did care. Or <laughs> something that we do think investors will care about, you know, probably will care about. And sometimes we get that wrong. So, um, you know, we have to think about probabilities. Then there's also the technical aspect. And this was especially acute during COVID, but what's the probability that we get squeezed? Like, what's the probability that it closes up massively on day one? I mean, that's, that's a crazy thing, like, especially during COVID. But even before COVID, like, we would see these phenomena where because of algos, HFTs, bad decisions we or other short activists made vis-a-vis -vis, um, floats and how much the floats were already short, et cetera. And also, if, we, if it leaks that we're going to be publishing on XYZ, like, that, that can create this phenomenon, too. But you know, you'll see these charts where here's a short activist report. And even when we say this company is a complete fraud, we've seen the stock just go down sharply for a few minutes and then just like rebound and soar, like go through the ceiling. And it's like, you know, okay, there's no person on the planet who, you know, read or read about or found out about our report in which we're calling the company a total fraud. And saying that it's, you know, 99% of its revenues don't actually exist. There's no person who read that and thought, huh, you know, I was on the fence about going long this stock. I actually think it's a better company than I thought now. I'm going to buy it. No, it's technical reasons that cause those movements. So we have to judge probabilities of those technical bounces like right in our face and especially relate that to what I was saying a moment ago about needing a good day one to create pressure on the company. Because if the stock, you know, and this, and this also gets to the media, right? Like if the stock closes down 10%, the headline is, um, you know, investors uh, alarmed by concerns raised by muddy waters, something like that. If the stock is flat, then it's investors brush aside concerns raised by, and if it goes up, <laughs> you know, it's, like investors ebullient in the face of concerns raised by, and it, 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 there's no regard, of course, to what actually drove the movements. You know, it's kind of, it, it's weird. We live in this strange time where technology has massively changed the nature of our markets, but we still tend to think of them as fundamentally driven. And, you know, I, I mean, here in the U.S. especially, we've had some academics who I think of uh, one academic in particular who's been pretty toxic because he's allowed himself to be used as a tool by these companies to make the case that activist short sellers are manipulating stocks. But you know, when I read his work or the work of other academics, I mean, they speak about things in terms that, again, I think are so anachronistic. It's, you know, well, if the short seller thinks that the activist short seller thinks that the stock is overvalued, then they will place a they will place a trade shorting the stock, publish a report. But then they will cover when they think that it has no, is no longer overvalued. Like that's not how stuff works, okay? And, you know, and, and the market agreed the stock was overvalued. No, there's so many 
you know, when you're when you're looking at the markets and the prices of securities and your only construct is a fundamental construct, you are wrong. You are missing so much of what drives markets these days. It's flows into passive. It's, you know, like how much of the float is, you know, is really going, going to trade, is owned by active managers and, and it's not held by hodlers or people who are trying to get into control positions or board seats. That's, that's the disconnect. So we live in this time when media especially, but well, media and investors don't understand the impacts technology have on markets. I'd say regulators have no clue either. And so, you know, what happens, the results, even if they're not really driven by fundamentals or, you know, trading related to fundamentals, the results of campaigns are always linked back, at least in the short term, are always linked back to the you know strength of the thesis or the activist report, which it, it's increasingly random. So as far as thinking about probabilities, we accept that we have to accept that since 2010, the outcomes, especially in the short term, but therefore somewhat in the long term, have increasingly become random in activist short selling, including for top tier players. But, you know, playing probabilities, it's still, I think, a great strategy if you can deal with all of the headaches, all of the blowback, handle all of the money you're going to spend on legal and the time it's going to take and blah, blah, blah. You know, and if it, and if it gets you out of bed in the morning to basically expose hypocrisy, then it's still a good strategy. I guess another, another way to ask that question is this decision-making tool that was invented by Gary Klein about the pre-mortem where you take your team to one side before going live with your report and you just ask them individually what could go wrong like think about yourself in the future five years down the road and list everything that could have gone wrong with this specific case like the regulator taking the side of the company or not doing the due diligence or the press or maybe even a well-known investor taking the other side of the trade which i guess has happened in the past yeah I mean, look, I, I guess we don't sit there and do. So one thing that is key to understand about activist short selling is for us, and I think for most activist short sellers, it's basically backward looking. So we're not, mo- we're not trying to come up with earnings models. Again, this isn't traditional short selling, which is model dependent, but activist short selling. We're asking three questions about the past. Has the company accurately as a company accurately disclosed key information or have they told a lie of commission? Has the company disclosed all the material information, like adverse material information, a lie of omission? Does the market interpret the information correctly? So if we can answer no to at least one of those questions, there might be something to do. Now that's, so we're not so from the perspective of, okay, what could go wrong with the thesis? You know, we're not, we, there's nothing, you know, since we're not saying, okay, we think that earnings are going to be down 35% next year. You know, we don't, there's no point in sitting there and saying like, well, what might make our projections wrong um, in terms of what can cause issues for us? Yeah. I mean, we sit here, look, Steinhoff um, is a company that blew up several years ago, big fraud. Uh, it had initially been homelisted in Germany. Then they homelisted it in South Africa. So the, the, the key people there were South African. We knew Steinhoff was a fraud. We considered very strongly publishing on Steinhoff. 
but here's the here's the problem like i recently read bill browder's red notice and you know i know that the fact that russia you know constantly like you know sends out these red notices through interpol for him you know he's got to always make sure before he travels to a foreign country that you know they're going to ignore that interpol red notice from russia um i said okay this is this is south africa we don't know much about this country but it doesn't seem like it has a strong rule of law. These guys are very wealthy South Africans. It's now homelisted in South Africa. Um, even if a U.S. court would not recognize the decision of South African court or the South African regulator, so you know, having to go through the hoops in the U.S. to show that there was no due process equivalent in South Africa, you know, even putting that to the side, I'm thinking, well, God, you know, like what if they put out a red notice? So. You know, we do we do have to think about what can really go wrong from that perspective with some of these situations. And so we, you know, like we stayed, we didn't do we didn't do anything on Steinhoff. And ironically, of course, it blew up a few months later. Um, so uh, with the auditor actually being the one to pull the plug, whereas we usually assume that auditors are not going to pull plugs and auditors will fight to avoid having fraud accusations ratified. I mean, if we're playing probabilities, that's the way it goes. But sometimes the auditor is backed into a corner and has no choice but to find the fraud and you're following the exposure and then pull the plug. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, but, so we do think about in certain situations, worst case scenarios. And, and yeah, I do find myself or I have found myself over the years a number of times saying, well, there's a price for everything. If we're in a foreign jurisdiction that we think is going to be could be hostile to us as short sellers. Well, we're not going to do that for a small potential PL. You know, we'll do it for a PL that we think could be significant. So, you know, not only in those situations are we thinking about possibilities as opposed to probabilities, but possibilities, but we're also putting dollar weightings on, you know, on what they're going to be, what they're worth as problems if they come to fruition. Buffett famously said once that one reason he didn't do much short shorting himself was that for him it was just one more position in the whole portfolio, but for the management owner of the business behind the fraud it was everything and they were willing to fight him and defend their situation till the end, to the point that it, it became very exhausting. So, how do you think about this and how much the process changes when you are dealing with a company who has a big personality behind? Don't want to make the question about uh, Elon Musk, but that's what comes to mind at least in my head, or also I remember that in many famous short selling cases, there's always or almost always a big investor on the, on the long side of the trade. Right. Well, yeah, so, so the, it's a really good question and there's, there's a decent bit to unpack there. So if we're dealing with a company that has committed crimes, Okay, they're, the way that the management will look at it almost always when they run their upside downside analyses is there's, there's no downside to denying this as hard as we can and fighting it as hard as we can and going back at the short activist with everything we can. There's no downside to it. I mean, it's not like, you know, the way the world actually works is they don't get credit at the end of the day you know, they don't get off lighter if they just say at that point, like, ah, oh, you got us. Okay, fine. 
that's not the way the world works, right? So for them, they're backed into the corner and they hit you with everything they can hit you with to try to get out of the corner. Now, so that's that's the guys who are committing crimes well over the line. Another bucket is just the intellectually fraudulent, financially engineered, aggressive accounting types who, I mean, their financials could be very meaningless or highly, they could be more misleading than actual frauds financials can be or more misrepresentative of economic reality. But they've had the they've had the auditors sign off and the auditors have had their lawyers sign off and the company's lawyers have signed off their disclosures in the notes that are nobody can understand deliberately, but that basically should exculpate everybody from liability. Now those guys aren't necessarily going to fight you know, they're, they're not necessarily going to hit with everything they can unless there's something that really has, you know, like if they have a lot of stock pledged or, you know, they were really about to move thinking about moving up to the next tier in wealth and status uh, or, you know, th then they'll then they'll fight hard. But a lot of times I think those companies, you know, do have. Not immediately. I mean, everybody, I think, has a bad reaction day one in terms of management and directors to basically being called unethical and, you know, being shown to be misleading their investors. But I think that a number of them do ultimately look in the mirror and say, you know, OK, look, maybe we should be less aggressive here. Or you know, some people might leave because they've been uncomfortable with the culture, or the, you know, the focus on producing paper profits and bad, you know, and like value destructive growth. So those guys aren't necessarily going to come back with, you know, guns and flamethrowers blazing. Now, in between, there's another, and you alluded to this, the big personality. Um, so if you have a situation, and maybe the company hasn't actually crossed the line, but you get these, you get these cults that are sometimes built around CEOs or, Maybe if it's not a full-blown cult, maybe it's just, you know, like the, the guy's been on the cover of Business Genius magazine or something. And they they develop these fragile egos where they, you know, where they, they have doubts about themselves. And look, I, I can speak to this from experience. Okay. So I started this in June of 2010. You know, I was basically sitting in a, you know, like sub-economic self-storage warehouse in Shanghai, China. By July of 2011, I was named by Bloomberg as one of the 50 most influential in global finance with like Ben Bernanke and Christine Lagarde and, you know, Jamie Dimon. And, you know, and like, and then I'm getting asked to opine on everything in finance and economics. And, and I was offering it up, you know, well, I think that the proper rate on the 10 year should be, and you know, corporate spreads need to, you know, like I was so far out of my lane but people were eating out of my hand when I did that. And I knew that I was a faker, right? And that gave me this, you know, at least when it came to those things. And that did give me some sensitivity about this. And for me, the decision was ultimately just to climb down from the tree and just accept, look, man, I do something very narrow. I think I do it very well. I'm happy with that. I don't need to be, you know, market genius to, to the masses here. But I think for a lot of CEOs who find themselves in a similar situation, they're suddenly put on these pedestals and they know they're, look, they know that they're, they're human. They're not superhuman. They know that their companies have issues. 
I think they fight really hard to cover, many of them will try really hard to cover those issues up once problems uh, arise. And, you know, that intake, you know, like, and that's what can take them into, you know, highly aggressive, misleading accounting, value destructive transactions that produce growth, or even across the line into fraud. And, you know, I think, I mean, I've seen this pathology. I think that was part of the pathology that, uh, I mean, I talked to Bethany McLean about this in, in detail. And I mean, she felt that was part of the pathology at Enron with Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling and, and Andy Fastow is they didn't want to disappoint. They, they loved their auras and statuses. And, you know, if anything, when problems cropped up in their business, it just incentivized them to be more aggressive and try to paper these problems over. And the problems, of course, got bigger because it's like almost a law, almost a law of the universe that any problem left unaddressed gets bigger, not smaller. And papered over becomes bigger, not smaller. So that, you know, so so that that's a special, that's a special case there. So those guys with the really fragile egos, even if they haven't committed fraud, they're often incentivized to come back really hard um, at you. And um, yeah, so that's you know, good example. I mean, of of the of two of these buckets would be Jean-Charles Nalfry of Group Casino, who just got raided by the AMF. But we issued our report on Casino and its holding company rally and the true debt and the bad economics that were being covered up through financial engineering in December of 2015. That was our first report. And Nalfry had both, I mean, he's just tremendously indebted. And so as Casino stock fell, that put his whole, the whole entire holding structure at risk, which Again, all the companies above him have since filed for Sauvegarde, which is the French form of bankruptcy. Um, and yeah, and it, and, but he also had this ego, right? Like I'm a business, I mean, he's a genius, literally, you know, he, I mean, that's, you know, I, but I think that he, you know, he just, the arrogance, you know, just because he was a genius, he could take on all this debt. He borrowed at low rates, invested at high in high yielding countries like Brazil and other places in LATAM. Um, and when those countries, you know, went into the toilet, 2011, 12, 13, um, you know, that's what really started to weaken the empire. But he was just too proud to let people see that as well. And so, as I said, like three, you know, the holding companies, I think there are four of them, have all filed for Sovgard. That happened in 2019. Um, he's, he's been, he's kept the plate spinning, but he just got raided by the AMF too. That has been reported in the news. So that's kind of, you know, that guy has fought really, 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 really hard. I mean, we've been out of casino for years, you know, but that's an example of a guy who, you know, buckets two and three there, who will come back at you with everything he's got. It's really interesting. Carson, we're coming to an end of our session, and we always ask our guests two questions, a book recommendation and an example of a bad outcome, which was the result of bad process and not bad luck. Okay, uh, sure. So book recommendations. Um, look, my people ask me all the time, you know, what, should I read, um, you know, like Accounting Shenanigans by Howard Schillett or Gordon No Gloves book on accounting if I want to you know, be a good short seller. 
or at least understand what you guys do, but I prefer the financial crisis books. So books on my favorite book is The Collapse of AIG called Fatal Risk by Roddy Boyd. I also like Crash of the Titans about Merrill. Uh, I mean, all of them are, are really, are, I think are really valuable. And then also I would throw in When Genius Fails, a book about long-term capital management's collapse. And the reason that I think that these books are, I put them at the top of the reading list or my recommended reading list for people who want to understand what we do is so that you can see just how, just how people's personalities and just a relatively small number of people and their own personal pathologies can bring these enormous organizations to their knees by sowing, by creating the conditions, if not directly themselves, sowing the dysfunction within them. And I mean, I think the book of the crash of the Titans about Merrill, when Stan O'Neill became chairman uh, and CEO of Merrill Lynch and totally changed the culture, surrounded himself with his cronies and yes men, kicked out, basically demoted the people who handled risk management, guys who were telling him like, hey, we have all of these really crazy uh, credit exposures to subprime in our, in our book here, you know, marginalizing those guys you know, the, by creating a wall of sycophants around them. Like those are, I, I think those are really instructive as to just at the end of the day, how human companies are. And all of the foibles that people have can be amplified massively when you're talking about a company. And, you know, and, and I think that's counterintuitive because I think a lot of people look at the company like, well, you've got all these cogs in the machine and they're just kind of spinning and doing their thing. Yes, but under the right conditions with the wrong people, it can become catastrophic. The, you know, the personalities of just a few personalities at the top of the business. So that's why I like those. It really, and it also just shows the self-interest in decision-making that top people will often make when you know, in the short-termism of their decision-making and the propensity to just dig a hole, you know, to and dig it deeper and deeper and deeper, you know, while telling yourself that it's going to be okay. I think that's what people really should focus on if they want to understand what we do. In terms of process that was wrong in retrospect, people ask me, well, have you been wrong? And, and you know, I say, no, we've never been wrong. We've had situations where we haven't made money now that sounds arrogant, but again, we're dealing with history, right? We're not trying to figure out the future. We're not, we didn't, you know, it's not that our earnings estimate was off. It's just, you know, we dealt with the past, right? Like this did happen, this did not happen. So if you do your work well, it's hard to be, you know, really wrong about that. But I think where we've had problems, uh, front running. Front running has been a big problem in our business over the years, and that can create technical conditions that just cause the stock to rip the moment the report is issued. And you know, we already discussed all the problems that creates. So that's been something that I forever deal with is just trying to, you know, just trying to eliminate people, you know, from our orbit who could compromise the, you know, the, I guess the, who could compromise the confidentiality of, of what we're doing. You know, I'd say also though, if you look at one of our worst shorts ever was American Tower in 2013. And there were two things that went on there. So there was number one, we were front run massively and it was an internal problem. And I then that's AMT is what tipped me off to that. Number two, um, I also learned in our business that, 
you know, so over the years, basically, the way that we generally are successful is we take a company that the market already perceives as having problems, you know, like a mediocre company, and we show that actually, no, it's a really flawed, problematic company. So taking a mediocre company and saying it's it's highly flawed. Now we have the we make the most money and the biggest impact when you take a company that the market thinks is great, Sinoforest, Burford, I mean, you know, at least was priced that way, and you show that it's actually a highly flawed, highly problematic company. Okay, but those are rare. You know, taking taking the nine or the 10, you know, on scale of like one to 10, 10 being great, taking a 10 and showing that it's a two or a three is pretty rare versus taking a five or six and showing that it's a one or a two. Now, AMT was thought of as a nine or a 10 and we showed it was a five or a six. And that was just a mistake. Market doesn't care when you're saying, here's a company priced for perfection and it's really mediocre company um, should be priced you know, as a mediocre company is. So that was one of the, the failures uh, on American Tower. But I'd say the, the most acute process failure there was coming out of Sinoforce. Sinoforce, um, which was two years earlier, we produced an almost 90-page report. And I mean, it, it had been public for 16 years, and there were just so many smoking guns of fraud in that. And we threw most of them into the report. And that mattered to people. They were like, oh my God, it's like this, you know, 80 some on page, 80 some on page compendium of fraud. And um, but with American Tower, we were still in this kitchen sinking approach. And we had found specific issues that, you know, I believe are material. Uh, I, you know, are, are highly material. And the thing is, though, we also kitchen synced it by putting in kind of a fundamental thesis, like, hey, everybody thinks that the cell phone tower is unassailable and it's the best business model around. However, there are threats to its long-term growth from data offloading through Wi-Fi and small cells. And, you know, we just lost credibility with that because what we do is specialize. So when traditional sell-side analysts try to argue with our research that, you know, when we pulled local filings and show these undisclosed related party transactions and that are likely fraudulent and the sell side analyst calls up management and says, hey, is this true? Oh, no, it's not true. And the sell side analyst who's normally, you know, making models about the future and trying to understand industry dynamics, when they cross over into our lane and reject the work that we've done, you know, like they, they shouldn't be doing that. Like they're, they're, you know, they're out over their skis. We were out over our skis when we start doing things that are fundamental, like on American Tower. And the largest shareholders, I mean, these, this was a large cap company, it was 30 billion at the time. The A-teams at Fidelity and T. Rowe Price were the analysts on this. And they already understood the technical threats and they had strongly held views, right or wrong, about how the tower industry will develop. And it was just, you know, and so when we started telling them, hey, maybe you're overly optimistic about this, we just lost credibility with them. And I think they automatically discounted substantially everything else we said. Like when we said, hey, it looks like this one transaction in Brazil had about $250 million of fraud in it or fraud and theft. I think they said, you know what? They're, they're probably as sloppy about that as they were about their assessment of the tower model. So who cares? We don't need to listen to this. So that was also, that was a, that was a big process mistake um, that we learned, which is don't kitchen sink these things. 
especially, you know, in more recent years where attention spans just don't exist anymore, at least for, you know, among humans and, um, and, and don't get fundamental, don't get out of our lane, you know, and hope that the fundamental guys respect us in return. I mean, they don't, but you know, that's at least we should not get out of our lanes. Awesome Lord, thank you very much for coming to the Bali Perspective Podcast. Great, thank you. Enjoyed it.